Romans 3, 21 to 26, I've been sort of teeing you up to anticipate this passage. We have, for the the last several Lord's Days, been in uh, Romans, that section of Romans that runs from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, and um, a whole lot of bad news in those chapters. There's a whole lot of bad news because Paul wants us to really understand our need for the good news. And he, it's as if Paul has prolonged his exposition of the bad news for these Christians in Rome and for us here in Charleston, because he really wants us to understand that we will never get the good news until we really get what is the bad news about ourselves by nature. And If you've been here, you'll remember that in chapter 1 he brings that indictment against the Gentile nations for their lawlessness and their rebellion against God, their suppression of the truth and what may be known about God in nature, and they suppress it in unrighteousness by a thousand different means of unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, you'll remember, Paul turns his attention to the Jews who think that they're better than the Gentiles, and he says, you're inexcusable. Because you who judge another do the same things. And then in chapter 3, he has come to lay that indictment against the whole of humanity. Whether Jew or Gentile, there's none righteous, no not one. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. God has given his law so that every mouth will be stopped and all the world will become guilty before God. And Paul has left us there. Now, because he is moving into that great section here in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And so if you have a copy of scripture, I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning. Romans 3, 21. By the way, this is one of two passages in the New Testament in which Paul hangs the entirety of the gospel on a conjunction And notice there in in verse 21, instead of saying, and, Paul says, but. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I have mentioned to you throughout this sermon series that Romans 3, 21 to 26 has been called the Mount Everest of Scripture. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've mentioned often through this series, called it the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, called it the chief point, the very center of this epistle, and the very center of the Bible. 
And Leon Morris has said this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. The most important single paragraph ever written. And as I have already noted this morning, the Apostle Paul has spent what seems like an inordinate amount of time trying to explain just how bad everybody is by nature. He has gone to the greatest lengths possible to level everyone down to the very dust so that they will see their need for what he brings before us here. Um, It's interesting, the apostle doesn't go to the lengths that he goes to in Romans 1 through 3, that, those sections we've seen, because he just wants to make everybody feel bad. The apostle understands what the Puritans used to rightly talk about as God needing to do a law work in the hearts of the people. Every one of us needs to have a law work done within us. We need to be undone by the law. We need to have our mouths stopped by the law. We need to come to a place where we're not self-justifying. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this this morning. Everyone, everybody has what, what certain uh, theologians and even sociologists have called a validating performance attempt, a validating performance attempt. We live our lives trying to validate. We try to, we try to do that with our work. We try to do it with our school. People do it with their, their parenting. They do it with their social networking or social statusing. Everybody's trying to find validation. Everybody's trying to find worth. And, and, and Paul has told us that there is nothing in us that can ever produce what we are looking for, what all men are looking for. There's nothing in you. You can never do good enough to be validated by God. You'll never do good enough to find your worth in who you are and what you do. And people don't like that. Um, I go to a gym that has a wall of secular maxims on it. And, and you've heard these phrases in society. You're worth it. You're, you've got everything you need in you. And Paul says you have nothing that you need in you. Absolutely nothing. Not one single thing. You can understand why Paul has to go to the lengths he goes to in these opening chapters because men need to be helped off of, women need to be helped off of their self-righteousness by nature. Whether it is our love of lawlessness or our love of self-righteousness, Paul has said all men by nature are dead in sins. All men are under the judgment of God. And here in this section, notice Paul will embed into it a summary statement in verse 23 that sort of captures everything in those first three chapters. Notice he summarizes it by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's that's man's plight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's It's not that we don't do good enough. It's not that we do a few things that make us feel bad. It's that we have missed the mark of bringing God glory in what we do. We have not lived in such a way as to bring him glory. We have not done the things that we have done in such a way to honor him and to point to him and to live for him. And so Paul has said that is the great plight of man. And now here in this Acropolis of scripture, he tells us the solution. And that is that God in the gospel has provided a righteousness that will solve the problem of man's unrighteousness and that he does it freely through Christ, by his blood, and it's received freely by faith alone. 
can understand as you look at this passage why it was so instrumental in the Reformation. It was one of those passages that held out the great truth that man is not accepted legally before God except by faith alone in Christ alone because of what Jesus has done, especially on the cross. Now, I want us to look this morning as we consider this passage at three things first. I want us to consider what Paul says is the source of our justification, the source of our justification. Secondly, the grounds of our justification. And finally, the instrument of our justification, the source, the grounds, and the instrument. Notice Paul turns this section in verse 21 on that great conjunction, but if you were with us back in our sermon series in Ephesians, you'll remember that they are Uh, There in chapter 2, after Paul sets out the the condition of man by nature in verses 1 through 4, that then says, but God, who is rich in mercy, and, and theologians have often said the entirety of the gospel is built on that one conjunction, but if, if it had been the word and, it would have meant inevitable judgment. But notice, this is the divine conjunction of grace. Even though we are like this by nature, even though every one of us falls under the condemnation of God by nature, every one of us deserves the wrath of God by nature. Notice what Paul says, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, you may remember that this is now the third reference to something God is revealing. You'll remember back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that Paul said in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But then in chapter 18, he says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And now he comes back to the solution that he gave in verse 17 of chapter 1. And he says now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God has done something to solve man's problem. Isn't that marvelous? The God against whom we have sinned, the God before whom we deserve judgment, the God to whom we will give an account one day for everything we have ever thought, said, or done, is the same God that provides the solution to the condemnation that we're under by nature because of his justice. Where we have been unrighteous, he has provided righteousness. I love, I love the way Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, says this. He says, in the gospel, God provides what he requires. In the gospel, God provides what he requires. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, here's a provision, and that provision is from God. There is no place we can look for righteousness. There is nowhere we will ever find a right standing before God. There is nothing in which we can invest ourselves from ourselves that will ever put us in a right relationship with God. But Paul says God has devised a way in his infinite wisdom and now has manifested it. In the fullness of time, Paul says, there in the first century, God has provided the solution to our unrighteousness. Um, I don't want you to miss this because you may hasten over it. I want you to look there at the second word. In verse 21, notice Paul says, but now, but now. 
Um, there will be another now in Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Here, Paul tells us now there is the provision of righteousness. It's not something we're waiting for. It's something God has fulfilled in redemptive history, in the fullness of time. God has done something to make this known now. The word now in Romans 3.21 and in chapter 8, verse 1, captures, listen carefully, captures the present reality and enjoyment of the benefits of the good news of the gospel. God is essentially saying there is now offered freely a righteousness that you could never attain to in your own strength. God is holding it out for all men. He has sent Christ to be our righteousness, and now he is presenting him to the world as as the solution, and and God is saying, I am the source of that righteousness. I want you to understand that in order to save you, I will figure out a way to do it, listen carefully, in such a way as to uphold my righteous standard and yet forgive you and accept you as righteous. Now, you may not understand this, but there is something of a conundrum in God doing this. Um the old Southern Presbyterian James Henley Thornwell reflecting on this passage. He said once, he said, the entertaining of a purpose of mercy created a crisis in the divine government. What is that crisis? How can God continue to be just? How can God continue to uphold his his infinite righteousness? How can God still punish evil? And yet how can God make a sinner who is unrighteous righteous without relinquishing his righteousness. There is something of a crisis here. And yet Paul is going to show us that God is solving what seems to us to be that crisis here by providing a righteousness through the Lord Jesus who is going to propitiate his wrath for his people and give them his righteousness. I want us to look at What Paul says here is God is providing a righteousness for us. Notice in verse 21, he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, you'll remember there's a whole lot of law and gospel in Romans. Remember, the Jews were trusting in the law. They thought they could establish a righteousness by it. They thought if they they were vigilant enough, if they were diligent enough, if they gave enough attention to it, that somehow they would be accepted as righteous in God's sight. And, And we've seen that they too are without excuse. But now Paul says, apart from law, apart from law, God has manifested another way of righteousness. You see, this is the law gospel distinction. Um if someone were to ask you what What role do your good works play in your being accepted by God? You would have to say none at all, not one bit, not at all whatsoever. Um, You'll remember I told you Isaiah, when he takes this up, says all our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. We're all like an unclean thing. And yet God has found a solution and a provision of righteousness for his people. Um, notice Paul does something very interesting when he talks about this 
provision of righteousness because you might be mistaken and you've got to listen very carefully. You might think, well, okay, so it sounds like Paul's saying there was a different way of salvation in the old covenant than there is in the new covenant. Because it sounds like you're saying now God has provided a righteousness. What you're saying is that he hadn't provided it before. It's something altogether new. And and notice what Paul does to kind of dispel that faulty understanding. Notice what he does in verse 21. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But then notice, but the law and the gospel bear witness to it. You see... Paul's saying everything that he is telling us here about what God has done now in in Christ in the fullness of time is everything that the Old Testament pointed to. You'll remember when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and his face shines like the sun and the divine nature breaks through the veil of his flesh for a moment that, that Moses and Elijah appear with him question you may have is why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to Christ. They bore witness to everything that God was going to do. Um, God had spoken often about this provision of righteousness in the Old Testament. He, through Jeremiah, had said that he would be the Lord our righteousness, that he would be our righteousness. Uh, he gives us a picture of this, doesn't he, in the picture of, Zach- of Joshua the high priest and Zechariah's vision, standing before the Lord and Satan there accusing him and saying, look at his filthy garments, look at his unrighteousness. And the Lord said, I've taken off his, his filthy garments and I've clothed him with robes of righteousness. You see, the law and the prophets were all pointing to this. The law was meant to drive us to this very solution. Even in the Old Testament, now much more clearly in the New Testament. And yet what I want us to see most clearly here first is that this righteousness uh, comes from God as its source. And that means that any response to this ought to be me going to God. And the only thing that I can say as a guilty sinner to God who has held out this provision is, God, be merciful to me. I must go to him, you must go to him and say, God, be merciful to me. Give me what you require and what you have provided. Give me the righteousness of Christ. And you know, it's amazing. The second, the second a sinner believes on the Lord Jesus, he or she is perfectly justified forever. The most aged saint will never be more justified The newest believer will never be less justified. The glorified saints in heaven are no more justified than the newest believer here on earth. The second we believe, God provides that that status of righteousness. He imputes it to his people because of Christ and by faith alone. Well, I want us to consider now the grounds of this justification, and it is clearly the Lord Jesus. Notice The Apostle Paul, as he expounds this and now talks about the grounds of this righteousness, he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 24, that whoever may be justified is merely justified by God's grace as a gift. Now listen, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, 
in a moment, we're going to talk about how we receive this righteousness. We're going to talk about the instrument of faith. But don't miss this this morning. It's not your faith that justifies you. Many Christians have made this mistake. God doesn't say, if you believe, I'll justify you. He justifies us because of what Jesus does. Our faith is merely how we receive Christ. It doesn't add to our justification. God doesn't exchange the old covenant law for a new law, namely faith. He gives us a redeemer who is going to be the righteousness of God for us, who is going to establish that righteousness for us. And notice Paul says that so clearly. He says that justification comes, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, notice this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's one of the greatest statements about what Jesus did on the cross. A number of years ago, I started realizing that many Christians don't understand the nature of progressive revelation. I knew a guy 20-some years ago who said to me, you know, if we just had the words of Christ and the gospel, that's really all we need. No, it's not. In fact... The gospel writers never really interpret the death of Christ for us. God saves that for the apostolic letters. What we have in Romans, what we have in Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the divine interpretation of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. The gospels give us the history, the facts that Jesus was a historical being, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. The the apostles interpret for us the meaning of the cross. And when they do, Paul takes us so deep. And here he gives us the, the epicenter of the meaning of the cross. That on the cross, God was putting his son forward. He was, he was uh, placarding him for the world to see. You know, sometimes when, oftentimes when major corporations are revealing some new invention or some, some new product that's going to solve problems that we haven't been able to solve. They'll, they'll have a press release. They'll, they'll have a big gathering. They'll do a big public announcement, and they'll display whatever it is before everyone to see what great thing they are presenting. And in a very real sense, what God has done is he has entered into the stage of the world and in Jesus Christ crucified, he has presented, he has has placarded across all the face of the earth what he has done to provide a righteousness where man lacks that righteousness. Notice what Paul says. He says he has put him forward. He has put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, there are three words in this passage that Paul is going to use that are three of the most important words in the Bible, and yet three that we probably often don't think about enough. One is the word righteousness, which we've talked a lot about. The other is the word redemption, a buying back. And the word here, propitiation. Now when we think about what Jesus did on the cross, it is like a a diamond that can be turned in every direction. And there's all these facets and sides to it. We see 
something of this when we look back in the Old Testament sacrificial system. There were different sacrifices. There were peace offerings. There were burnt offerings. There were, there were sacrifices that accomplished different things, that solved different problems for God's people before him. And, and as we learn about those things and we understand that Jesus is the sacrifice of God, that he's offering himself on the altar of the cross, we understand there are different sides. One of those is atonement. One of those is that by his blood he covers our sins, he forgives us. But that's not the idea that Paul is importing here. Paul's talking about more than forgiveness. He's talking about another, another aspect of the gospel that, that we need, and that is propitiation. Now, the word in Greek is only used twice in this form in the New Testament. Uh, it is used in another form in Hebrews chapter 9 to speak of the mercy seat. Now notice this. When Paul is speaking about the grounds of our justification, he says that Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation. He doesn't say Jesus came to make propitiation, though that's true. He actually says he set him forth as a propitiation. Now, if I'm right, and the idea is that Jesus is here set forward as the fulfillment of the mercy seat, it's important for us to go back and understand what the mercy seat was. You'll remember in the temple when uh, God had given all the directions. He had had Israel make that box, the Ark of the Covenant, and overlay it with gold. And, and inside that Ark went the, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded, and a, a bowl full of the manna. And then a lid went on top of that box, and that was where the mercy seat would be. And then overshadowing those were two angels, cherubim, with their wings touching, and, and you will know, I, I imagine if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will know that God came and dwelt right there, right in between the cherubim, that he says that's his footstool, that it was in a, a sense a type of his throne. And yet Paul is not saying that Christ came to be the indwelling God, though that is true. He says Christ came to be the propitiation, that his blood was the blood that was sprinkled, as it were, on the mercy seat. Why is that important? Because if there's no blood on the mercy seat, God cannot come and dwell with you. You cannot be reconciled to him. Because of the transgressions of the law inside the ark, because of our transgressions of God's commandments, God cannot dwell with us. We cannot dwell with God unless there is a propitiation, unless his wrath is turned away, unless... There is blood on the mercy seat. And what Paul is saying here very clearly, I think, is that Christ is both the sacrifice and the mercy seat. It's his blood sprinkling, cleansing, covering the mercy seat so that we can be reconciled to God. Now, this has been wildly unpopular the last 200 years. Many theologians who hate this, by the way, there have been many also who have said they hate Christianity because it's a religion of blood. It is a religion of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Here you could say without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no propitiation of God's wrath. 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no reconciliation with God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no righteousness. But we can also say because of the shedding of blood, because Christ was set forward as a propitiation, we can know that we're accepted by God. We often quote here the Westminster Standards, the Confession and the Catechisms. I want to read to you, though, one of my favorite of the Heidelberg Catechisms this morning on justification. I want you to listen to this. Heidelberg Catechism question 30, how are you righteous before God? The authors say, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, am still inclined to evil, yet God without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect sacrifice, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me, listen very carefully, he grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin. This is the hardest thing to get into our consciences. Because of what Jesus has done, if if we're trusting in him, Because of what he's done, it is as if we had never sinned. That's how God sees us. When he sees us, he sees Christ. He sees him as a propitiation. He smells his sacrifice. I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, God's anger, the the word for anger and nose in Hebrew are very similar. And when um, the sacrificial system worked, the the Old Testament writers sometimes denoted as God smelling. You, You see this... Uh, You see this in the the narrative about Noah. When Noah sacrifices off the ark, it says the Lord smelled the aroma. And and it was as if the the anger of his nostrils flaring up like a bull flaring up were were abated. That, That he is now propitiated toward his people because he smells the sacrifice. By the way, that language is picked up in Ephesians 5 where it says Christ has become a sweet-smelling aroma to God as a sacrifice. You see, the living God looks on what Jesus did, counts it towards you, accepts you in him, counts you as if you had never sinned, even though we know how sinful we are. The Heidelberg says, he grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which with Christ rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's amazing. What you're hearing this morning is the most amazing thing any creature in this world could ever hear. God has provided this righteousness. Christ is the grounds of this righteousness. You know, I think it's fair to say when we forget this, we have all kinds of problems in our lives and in our fellowships. And when believers forget this, we inevitably live in the flesh. We've got to be be drawn back to this constantly. Sinclair Ferguson rightly says, the solvent in the Christian life and in the Christian church is the gospel. Things tend to go wrong in our lives and in the Christian church, in our fellowship together, when we lose sight of the grace and glory and power of the gospel. You see, we need to be rooted in this over and over and over again because as we are, here's what happens. 
we come off of our own righteousness. We stop trying to, we try, we, we stop trying to find our validation in things that we do. Or in, in things we think other people should do that we think we do. In some standard that we set up that we think somehow we're better than other people because we don't do what they do. By the way, I've already mentioned that the, the right response to this is to cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that comes, you know, out of the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you had looked on at those two men in the temple when they stood to pray, and in Jesus' parable, you'll remember the Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I don't do what they do. I fast, I, I give, I pray. And, and the publican just beat his breast, and he, he looked, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and if you looked on at those two men, and, and you were asked at that point in that temple, and you saw them and heard them, which one was good and which one was evil, you probably would have said that the, the publican was evil and the Pharisee was good because that's what the Jews would have said in their day. You see how deeply entrenched self-righteousness is. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. But Jesus says that the the tax collector went home justified because he understood who he was and the Pharisee didn't. You You see how difficult this is for people to get. We've got to come off of our own righteousness. We've got to go straight to the foot of the cross. We've got to see the bleeding sacrifice of Christ. We have to understand what the Lord Jesus has done We have to see that he is the propitiation for our sin and that we are accepted in him and in him alone. Now, you've heard me mention already several times the role of faith in this. And I want us to look finally here at the instrument of our justification. There is only one way for you to receive this righteousness, it's by faith and faith alone in Christ. Um, Paul will speak about this as a free gift. He'll say in verse 24 that all of this is by his grace as a gift. Um, Paul will continue this argument that there's nothing we can do. Nothing. To, to bring ourselves into favor with God except to trust in the Lord Jesus, to receive him by faith alone, to cling to him, to rest in him. You know, it's an important thing for us to come to terms with the fact that there have to be evidences of God's grace in our life. Um, it's, it's easy for someone to say, I believe, and not to evidence that faith. James will deal with that in his, his epistle. And yet, I want to I warn you this morning that evidences are, are a secondary, a consequential thing. They are not foundational. Um, evidences are not the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. Faith alone is. The Lord Jesus is offered to us um, faith is uh, faith is holding out empty hands and saying, Lord, you do as you have promised. I take you at your word. I believe that you have provided in your son everything that I need and I will trust him. That's, that's the essence of justifying faith. It's holding fast to the Lord Jesus 
and saying, you have done everything for me. All I have contributed is sin. All I deserve is judgment. All I deserve is condemnation. And yet, you have provided everything for me. God is glorified when we do that. By the way, that's why justification is by faith alone and not by faith plus love. Because faith is an instrument that brings God most glory because we're essentially saying, I take you at your word. I believe that you are who you say you are and have done what you have said you have done. And whenever I live in sin, whenever you live in sin, we're forgetting that God has done everything necessary and we're failing to trust in Christ as we ought to. Um, Spurgeon, though, says this. Listen to this. Spurgeon says, evidences are good as second things, but as first things are usurpers and may prove to be antichrist to Christ. Whatever my evidences may say, if I believe in the precious blood, there is not a sin against me in God's book. Hear that clearly this morning. If I believe in Christ and his precious blood, there is not one sin against me in God's book. And in the teeth of everything that might make me tremble. Now the question is, have you believed in the Lord Jesus? That's that's the great question. Have you trusted in him? Have you cried out to him? Have you cast yourself on him? Have you said, Lord Jesus, apart from you, I, I would perish. I'm undone. I need your righteousness. I need your propitiatory sacrifice. I need you to atone for my sins. I need to be clothed in your righteousness. Those things are pleasing. Listen, when you say that to the Lord Jesus, he longs to respond to that by saying, I am exactly who my word says I am, and I will do for you exactly what I've said I'll do for you. And you can see how marvelous the good news is when you've come to terms with who you are and then with who he is and what he's done. Um, Christian life is fraught with ups and downs. It's often a sort of a spiritually emotional roller coaster. We have highs, we have lows. There are times we may feel close to the Lord. Other times we feel condemned by our sin. Um, There are times we feel paralyzed by our sin. There are other times we feel invigorated by the gospel. And that, that up and down can sort of throw us for a loop and can unsettle our minds and hearts. But I want to read this to you this morning. Listen to this. Octavius Delphus, the great... I'm sorry, Octavius Winslow. Octavius Delphus is a missionary in Haiti, named after Octavius Winslow. Octavius Winslow, um, the great uh, 19th century theologian, said this. When the question returns, should God mark my iniquities, how can I stand? Let faith, resting upon the divine word, answer, Jesus is my substitute. Jesus stood in my place. Jesus bore my sin. Jesus did all, suffered all, paid all in my place. Here I rest. Here I rest. Listen, I'm going to tell you this every Lord's Day until we die or with with Christ. Because on Judgment Day, this is the only thing that will matter. Have you come to see 
that you need a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself and comes from God alone? Have you come to see that God provides that through Christ and that he is the grounds of that and he is the propitiation, the mercy seat whose blood covers our transgressions and reconciles us to God? And have you received him by faith alone and are you resting in what he has done? I want to say this this morning. In the soul of every true believer, there is a fight for us to believe these things because you do not naturally. There is no one who just naturally has an inclination to hear this and say, I believe that. In fact, everything in us by nature revolts against this. And so we fight. We fight to believe that God has provided righteousness. We fight to believe that Christ really is a propitiation for our sins. And we fight to trust in him. But we don't do it to merit anything from God. We do it for the comfort and the consolation of the gospel. If I can say this to you this morning, if you're a true believer, God wants you to have the comfort of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He wants you to rest in Christ. There are some people who think, I've heard the Lord Jesus say, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And if I just could feel my weariness to the degree that I need to, then I'll know that rest. Again, that would be you trusting in something you're trying to bring forward. The Lord Jesus says, come without money, without price. Come, let your soul eat and live by wine and milk, without money and without price. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says here, whoever is unrighteous, come to me and I'll give you righteousness. Whoever is sinful, come to me, Jesus says, and I will atone for your sins. Listen, our minds are so restless over so many things all the time. We need them settled by this. Because when they're settled by this, they're not restless about everything else. We're not troubled about everything else because this is the thing we ought to be troubled with the most so that we find that this is the place where we find rest the most. You know, the apostle has brought us up to this Everest this morning. He doesn't want you to really ever leave. He's going to say lots of other things in this letter. He wants you to plant your feet firmly on this mountain and say, I will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I will trust that he has done everything for me. I will cast myself wholly on him. I will not try to establish my own righteousness, and I will rejoice that God has done this for me. You know, in chapter 5, Paul will talk about the fruit of getting this, and he'll say, having been justified, we have peace with God, and we rejoice. If you want peace, this is where you find it. I know that you can get help from counselors and therapists. You will never find peace for your soul from any therapist, ever. No successes in life, no status, no pleasure, not your children, not how many children you have, not the kind of education you give your children, nothing. You will never find rest until you find it here. Um, I was reminded this week about Rockefeller. He was again asked in that interview, how much money is enough? He said, just one more dollar. Just a little bit more. It will never be enough, and yet this is enough. Notice what Paul says there at the beginning. 
God has provided this righteousness of God through faith in Christ. He has manifested it. He has put him forward. He has put him forward. Y'all, if I could do one thing in this pulpit this morning better than I probably have done is to put Christ forward, to put him forward as bleeding, dying, buried, rising, ascending, reigning, coming again, to put him forward that he would be the object of your faith. I hope that as you hear this this morning, you are wrestling in your soul that you would be determined that you would not go anywhere else but to the cross, to anyone else but to Christ, for anything else but for the righteousness of God by faith alone in Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, again, we do ask you to give us a greater understanding and appreciation for these precious truths. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for uh, the justification that you have provided us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our righteousness, that you are a propitiation for our sin, that your blood was sufficient to sprinkle the mercy seat and cover our offenses and reconcile us to God. Make us to know the acceptance that we have in you by your grace freely from God. We do pray this morning, if there are any here who have never come to be justified, that today they would know the blessing of being accepted by faith alone in Christ. Or God, if there are any here battling with their sin and a gnawing conscience, we pray that you would quiet it with this good news that we would know peace and that we would know joy and that you would make us to truly know that when you look at us in Christ, you see us as if we had never sinned. And so, our God, would you astonish us afresh with these truths? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.